right, this section of scripture is dense with remarkable things to behold in it. The best that I'm going to be able to do in an hour is to give you just enough to read it for yourself and study it in further depth. It's one of those passages where you get kind of like the whole Bible all in a, in a few words. Uh, this is where uh, you have Balaam and his donkey, and Balaam has these four oracles that we're going to talk about, and what he ends up doing is uh, preaching God's global plan to the nations. So you think he's uh, ex- he's in he's in, in a way re- revealing everything from Genesis to Revelation. Not everything, but uh, laying out the big things that are to be followed from the beginning of Scripture to the last days and the culmination of everything in history. And also in Numbers twenty-five is maybe the one of the least known covenants in Scripture, which is the priestly or Levitical covenant. So one of the everlasting covenants that God makes in Scripture. And we'll have a little bit of time to to talk a bit about that. So coming into this section where we need to be reminded that God, God's creation plan is to do what? What is God's plan for all of creation? Yeah, it's to reflect His, to his glory and for his, his glory to fill the entire earth. And we read that back in Numbers 14, 20 to 21. It says, so Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Now, that's his plan. That's what he's going to do. And God has a covenant purpose that's specific to what we call the Abrahamic covenant, that this plan of glorifying himself is going to involve land, seed, and universal blessing, and that God's going to use one nation to bless all other nations. And this is back in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where we read how those who curse that nation that, come, that will come from Abraham will be cursed, and those who bless that nation, they will be blessed. But for there to be a future and a hope, there has to be an Israel throughout all of history because it's the conduit through which God's blessing is going to come. We also know that God has a holiness plan that we've been talking about from Leviticus onward, and we find out this, this holiness plan isn't just for Israel, but it's for all nations. And the nations are picking up on that, but they see that His holiness is something that's also expressed in judgment, and they don't want that, especially Balak, who's the king of the Moabites. He sees this military that's being built out in the wilderness and doesn't want them to be a threat to his nation. There's got to be something that he can do about it. In Numbers 22 to 25, we have God's creation plan and his covenant purposes all being made known to the nations, and the nations are trying to manipulate God's plan. They don't want it to to carry out in the way that would lead to their destruction. They want to stop his purpose somehow, 
but in their trying to manipulate God's plan, what happens is it opens up an opportunity for God to address the nations concerning His holiness and His plan for Israel. So this text, if you look at it in two parts, we have the section which I call How Firm a Foundation, which is focused on God's Word, which goes forth through these oracles, which express God's global plan. And anytime there's, you know, some really awesome sermon and content given, then Israel tends to, to try to, like, sin bigger than they've ever sinned. And so you get, you know, the next half in chapter 25, you know, the, the fickleness of a congregation, the congregation of Israel. And this section is the hinge which moves from the wilderness generation that's going to die in the wilderness to the, the faithful generation that's going to be led under Joshua. So this is a huge moment in Scripture. So as we approach it together, let's pray for the Lord's help. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grasp the heights and the depths and the breadth of your glory throughout history, which you have revealed here in Numbers 22 to 25. And we pray that you would give us a great awe of you who is the controller of history, that everything works according to the counsel of your word, and that it would strengthen us to see your faithfulness, and it would develop in us a greater enduring trust and hope and faithfulness unto you as we would see your greatness and control of all things. Amen. Beginning here in this section, which I've titled How Firm a Foundation in chapters 22 to 24, we first see in the first six verses the enemy of Yahweh's people, who is Balak, the king of Moab, and he calls for Balaam. Who was Balaam? He's another bad guy, probably has a bad guy mustache and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, Balak and Balaam. And Balaam is a famous, he's an international God whisperer. He's super famous to everybody. And he was called in to, to deal with the Israelite problem that great kings try to deal with throughout history. It says in verses 5 to 6, if you're in chapter 22, verses 5 to 6. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are settled opposite me. So now, please come curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. And perhaps I may be able to strike them down and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed... And he whom you curse is cursed. Here you already hear echoes of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 1 to 3 with the curse and the blessing. But Balak thinks that Balaam has that power which only God has. And King Balak knows that he's no match for Israel because of their God Yahweh who is with him and who has destroyed Egypt. And if he can destroy the greatest superpower on the planet, then he'll have no problem destroying the, the Moabites. 
So he tries to get this famous God whisperer, Balaam, to place them under a curse so that this fate won't befall his nation. And what's interesting in this while you're reading through Numbers is that it's kind of this break in the story of something that's going on in the background that the Israelites have no knowledge of. They have no idea that all of this is going on and that these, there's this supernatural assault on them. And the nations are, through this event of seeing all these things that are going on with Israel in the wilderness and hearing about what Yahweh has done for them, there's a fear in them and they want to stop Yahweh from coming to them. They want to stop Israel from coming out to meet them and disturb their way of life. Which brings us to verses 7 to 20, the defender of Yahweh's people. Now, the enemy is Balaam. He's kind of like the pagan counterpart to Moses, where Moses was, you know, the prophet to Israel. Balaam was the prophet to the other nations. He was internationally famous. And he was a weird guy. Balaam was a really weird guy that gets dealt with in really weird ways in Scripture here. And King Balak promises to honor Balaam richly, is what we learn here, which is to to not like give him a plaque or a brick with his name on it somewhere or to put his name on a bench out in the park, but to give him money. That's what he's talking about. Balaam, Balaam likes money. He was a prophet for profit. Second Peter chapter 2 says, speaking about false teachers and false prophets, it says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray and have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own lawlessness, for a mute donkey speaking out with a voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, throughout Scripture, when we read of God speaking to Israel, we read, Yahweh spoke. But when you read through this section with Balaam, you read, God said. You don't read the covenant name of Yahweh in speaking to him. It's just God, which is showing Balaam's outside of the covenant. Uh, He's not a spokesperson for God like Moses was, who fellowshiped with God face to face. But you see, Balaam can't even see God, you know, with the whole instance with the donkey. He doesn't even see the the angel of Yahweh before him. And God declares his covenant purpose to Balaam in chapter 22, verse 12, when he says, it says, and God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. Now, what, what covenants are operative in Scripture at this point? Yeah, we think we got it. So we got the Noahic covenant, God's promise, His promised goal of rest to all of creation. We have the Abrahamic covenant that His plan of rest is going to involve land, uh, seed, and universal blessing. And the third one is the Mosaic Covenant. Now, which one of those covenants is Israel 
blessed according to it. Right? So you think, how, how are they doing it being blessed under the Mosaic Covenant? Not so good. So you're thinking, like, why are these people blessed? Well, they're, they're blessed because of God's promise in the Abrahamic Covenant, not their performance to the Mosaic Covenant, which pointed them back to how they needed God's promise in the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, moving on to this next section, 21 to 35, this is where we have Balaam and his donkey. I've, the way that I kind of see this playing out as I read it, it's like a Charlie Chaplin film, if you've ever seen that. It's just all these sort of silly things happening in these little captions that come up to explain what's going on. And so I titled this uh, short film here, Three Strikes and Are You Out of Your Mind? Humor in Scripture is often used to address very serious, even deadly matters. Uh, perhaps one of the funniest books in the Bible is the most tragic, which is the book of Judges. Ironically, this donkey that Balaam rides on has far greater insight into spiritual matters than the famous God Whisperer. Uh, he's able to see the angel of Yahweh standing as an adversary to Balaam, which Balaam is not even able to recognize. And while Balaam's donkey seems to be having some front alignment issues, it actually turns out he's been upgraded with voice assistance technology, which Balaam says to his donkey, why have you made a donkey out of me? And the donkey says, hey, who's the real donkey here? And it turns out the donkey's alignment was just fine. It was actually Balaam who was off throughout this whole escapade. The God of creation is the one who opens the mouth of the donkey and the eyes of Balaam are opened to reveal what was really going on. When you read through this text, you read three times that the donkey saw. And the whole time, it, Balaam isn't seeing what's happening. But after these three instances in which the donkey sees the angel of Yahweh, Balaam strikes the donkey three times, and ultimately it's displayed that Balaam is the one who is actually truly out of his mind. Now, if God ever has to use a talking donkey to get your attention, it's because you're pretty stubborn. You notice throughout Scripture that miracles and stubborn hearts tend to live around each other, like Pharaoh and Moses and the plagues and then Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the altars and Jesus and the Pharisees. Even though the Israelites are totally unaware of Satan's enmity against them, trying to be carried out through Moab, Yahweh is still protecting his people behind the scenes, even though they don't know that all of this is going on. You see that everything is going according to God's plan and word, and he's super attending, making sure that that's happening globally through dealing with the nations. Which brings us to this section, chapters 23 to 24, where we have the 
for oracles that are spoken by Balaam. These four oracles, I see their focus as being on Yahweh's controlling word and his global plan, because his word controls everything, and he has a plan for the entire planet. One of the questions that's raised as you read through this, because you know that Balaam is a false prophet, it's like, well, how can he say all of these marvelous true things when he's a false prophet? Well, what you need to recognize when you're reading through this section is these are Yahweh's words. These are not Balaam's words. These are Yahweh's true words and not Balaam's deception. As we've already seen, God can, u- can use anything to bring across His truth because He's in control of everything in creation, from the donkey to the crooked prophet to even later bringing His Word through clay pots or weak vessels such as ourselves. You see, God's Word isn't constrained by anything in creation whether it be animals or false prophets or weak vessels. Now, in looking at these oracles, the first one that I've laid out here in chapter 20 through 23, verses 1 through 12, the focus here is that Israel will be blessed. And as a result, the nations are going to be blessed also, as this is God's global plan. And as you read it, you will recognize the language of the Abrahamic covenant throughout it, the language of curse and blessing. And what's happening here is that Balaam is reiterating the truths of the Abrahamic covenant promises to the nations as an, inter, as an unintentional international witness. And what happens here is kind of cartoony with Balak and Balaam, and they go out through this whole sacrificial process that's real formal with these sets of seven, but it's all so silly at the same time. And Balak, he pays Balaam to curse Israel, but then he ends up finding out he, maybe this prophet's broken or something. He pays him to do something, and it, it always backfires on him. Uh, it's kind of like a wily e. coyote sort of thing and, you know, trying to catch the roadrunner. But every time he does it, it always backfires on him. We see here that God's Word controls history, and each one of these oracles ends with a statement like in verse 12. And, 2312, where the oracle ends with, must I not be careful to speak what Yahweh puts in my mouth? This is showing Yahweh's controlling word. His word controls everything that's happening in history. Coming to Oracle 2, this is in chapter 23, verses 13 to 26, It focuses on Yahweh's present and future enduring faithfulness. Now, Balak thought that his purchase of this prophet might do better if they just change scenery. Maybe if we go to another place, the curse will work. This is what I'm talking about. It's just silly 
It's like, ah, this didn't work. Let's, let's try a different location. You know, that'll make the curse work. And they try that a couple of times. <laughs> and Balaam speaks. This is in chapter 23, 18 to 20. Chapter 23, verses 18 to 20. Balak speaks. It says, Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not establish it? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. We learn here that God is not a man that he should break his covenant promise to bless the children of Abraham. Uh, he, he can't do that. He won't do that. Uh, he can't change his mind or repent of his promise to bless the nation of Israel. Up to this point in Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Numbers 23-19, uh, God has fulfilled all of his promises. Uh, he has fulfilled every bit of his good word. And I would say, but, you know, besides some of those things that are prophesied in Leviticus 26, which we talked about back then in Leviticus 26, which is one of those other chapters in the Bible that lays out the whole Bible. It lays out God's global plan and the centrality of Israel and the blessing and the curse and how that carries out throughout history. What we're reminded of here is that God will faithfully endure to the end. His word will faithfully endure to the end because he can't lie. Uh, he, he can't do anything different than what he has said that he's going to do. Uh, everything in history has to work out according to his word. He never changes what he said. Uh, he never changes his plan. He will and must carry it out faithfully. And he has a goal to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, and nobody can stop it. Nobody can thwart it. Nobody can hinder it. It will be carried out. Now, Oracle number three focuses in on this Abrahamic covenant. It's in chapter 23, verse 27, to chapter 24, verse 13, and it's an in-depth picture here of the glorious Abrahamic covenant. If you were to look at chapter 24, verses 7 to 9 there, I'd like to read those, 24, 7 to 9. It says, Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be lifted up higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries, and he will gnaw their bones into pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. So Balaam speaks of a seed of a king, a kingdom who's like a lion. The glorious outcome of the Abrahamic covenant revolves around a king. And Balaam is teaching these truths to 
the nations, that there's a coming king and kingdom who's going to restore all of creation. And in verse 13, and similar to the other oracles, what Yahweh speaks, that I will speak. That brings us to the fourth oracle, which we'll spend a little more time on here. In chapter 24, verses 14 to 25, where there's a focus on the king. If you look at verse 14, it says, So now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the last days. So we're familiar with you know, cross-references in our Bible. They're placed, well, in mine, they're you know, right there in the center. You can find those little Bible cross-references and follow them out. But the Bible already has its own internal cross-referencing system that works through certain phrases like, in the last days, which ties together uh, all of this theology throughout Scripture. The first use of it is found in Genesis 49.1, if you want to turn and look over at that. Genesis chapter 49, verse 1 says, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days. And some of you might say, Well, my translation says in the latter days, but in the other one it says in the last days. You can get a legacy standard Bible and they will all be translated the same every time and all be connected so you know that it's the same phrase all the way throughout. I need to like talk to these people to see if I can like get commission on trying to sell these Bibles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> or like we can get like a huge discount or something like that. So in the last days, he's, he's speaking about in the last days and in particular, I want you to look at the, this prophecy in verses 8 to 10. So we're still in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10. Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares to rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And we read the other verses too. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dark from wine and his teeth white from milk. Now we have enough familiarity with scripture to know this is talking about the prophesied son, seed, who's a scepter. Uh, he is Shiloh, the peace bringer. Uh, looking at verse 24, it says also, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From his hands, the mighty one of Jacob 
from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So we find out he's a son, a stone, a scepter, a scepter, a scepter, a shepherd, the stone of Israel. He's like a lion in his strength. Uh, he will bring to himself the obedience of a people. He'll bring out a, a judgment which involves blood and a kingdom which has such great wealth that it has a bunch of milk, which is why his teeth are white. That's the point of that uh, phrase that sounds weird to us, but it's a way to talk about somebody who's incredibly wealthy. So this phrase, in the last days, ties back to the first use of this back in Genesis 49.1 and these prophecies about this mighty one who had come from Judah and be all of these things that are prophesied, which later links to this one who is the son of David, who, well, we'll look here in Revelation in a little bit, but it talks about this lion that comes from the tribe of Judah, who's the seed of David in Revelation 5, and ties that seed of David to a star in Revelation 22, and is the one who's the ultimate fulfillment of all of these prophecies. You can look up on a computer the phrase in the last days and find all those verses in the Bible. If we had time, I would read them all to you. And what it does is it, it, it'll lay out to you uh, the Bible's eschatology, the Bible's uh, how, how the beginning connects to the end and all of the things that happens, which involves the king coming down and all the blessed, all the, all of the, the, the nations coming to be blessed by him by coming to his capital city in Jerusalem. Why do we have to go through this so fast? But you can look that up. You know, you use uh, Bible software, Logos Bible software, something to type in, you know, in, in the last days and read all of those verses. Going back to Numbers 24, 17. Uh, starting in verse 16, the oracle of him who hears the word of God and he knows the knowledge of the Most High who beholds the vision of the Almighty falling down yet having his eyes opened. So what happens when the guy's eyes are opened? It says in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. And one from Jacob shall have dominion and will make the survivor perish from the city. So you read here how Balaam communicates that he, he sees him. He's seeing a particular ruler, but not now. He beholds him, but he's not near. This is a, 
a very distant future prophecy about the climax of all of history. We're still looking forward to the full fulfillment of it, even this very day. And he speaks of a star. Now, the star is, the, the point of this word is that it, it's a rising, ascending, ascending dominant king. The star is referring to a rising, ascending, dominant king, which Balak wanted to stop that, which also, you know, King Herod wanted to stop this star from ascending and rising as well. And what happens in Scripture as you go on is that there's a star that announces the star. You remember this time with uh, the wise men who they knew their Bibles. They knew about how all this star stuff with the ascending, rising king worked together and where he would be, what town, what place, what time all of this stuff would happen. And in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, which all of this stuff gets laid out in Daniel, laying out this king and the year in which he would come and everything. And they had the timeline, and they said, this is it. <laughs> it's all happening right now. It says so in Numbers and Daniel, and that's how they knew to go with their gifts. And this happened in the days of Herod the king, who was a descendant of Edom, by the way. And behold, this magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So one, one of the things that's helpful to understand about Bible prophecy is that uh, when part of it's fulfilled, not all of it is always fulfilled. So one of the things that happens is you have you know, partial fulfillment of these things that are being prophesied in Jesus' first coming, but you'll have a full fulfillment of them in his second coming. So you see the, you know, the expectation of the disciples when Jesus comes is that this is the time when he totally conquers Rome and puts all enemies under his feet and he subjugates every king and ruler under, under him and he, and he frees us to establish us as the rulers and the mediators of his blessing to the entire planet. Well, they weren't wrong to believe that, but it's yet to be fulfilled. There's a full fulfillment to still come in the future, which culminates out in Revelation 22:16. If you want to look over at that as another reference to the star there, and if your neighbor has not underlined star in their Bible, you can love your neighbor and underline star here and. Revelation twenty two sixteen for them. It says, I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus identifies himself as that descendant of David who comes and conquers and who is that rising, ascending star and dominant king. Back in Numbers 24, what is it that this king will do? Well, we read he's going to crush the head of Moab. What? 
verse in the Bible does that remind you of? Yeah, Genesis 3.15. So it's like, here's the snake crusher, the skull crusher. He's going to crush the entire family of the serpent. He's going to take the kingdom that he has for a time and totally decimate it. Moab, who knows what Moab means and where these people came from. Yeah, yeah, Lot and his daughters who gave birth to his son, grandson, nephew, <laughs> right? And so Moab means who is my father, right? So it's showing the confusion of that sin and those weird uh, family relations. And uh, he's, he's going to crush the head of who is my father. This is kind of like, you know... Who's really my dad and in charge of this place? It's like God's in charge. He's the father of time and creation. He owns everything. And he's, when he comes, he's going to bring his recompense with him. And all, all of the serpent family who stole things from him, he's going to crush them and take them back and give them to his people. It says also he's going to tear down the sons of Sheth, which means the sons of Tumult, or the children of wrath, as they're referred to in Ephesians 2. And he's going to come and take possession of what was taken from him, that he is and will be the dominion man who will destroy every last enemy. So we learn here that there is a king who is coming who will deliver and destroy. He's also referred to as a scepter which is what a king has. It's a reference to a ruler, which also not only did kings carry scepters, but so did shepherds. So he is a shepherd warrior king. And we read about him back in Genesis 49. So what Balaam is doing is he, he's, in a, in a way, teaching a theology of Genesis to the nations. He's tying together Genesis 3.15 and the seed skull crusher to Genesis 12.1 through 3 and the promise that was made to Abraham for a land, a seed, and a blessing that would come through a, one particular nation to every nation to Genesis 49 of the star, scepter, shepherd, stone of Israel, who's a lion from the line of Judah, who will bring peace and every knee will bow to him in obedience. He is the one from Jacob who will have dominion. So that word dominion, it's a rare word in Scripture. It doesn't come up very much. So this is another one of those kind of cross-reference words. This word dominion, think back in Genesis. Where does it show up for the first time in the Bible with a guy who's supposed to have it? Yeah, Adam. Adam is supposed to have dominion. How did he do? Not so good. So, so we need a guy that's like that but doesn't do what he did. Uh, we need a guy who actually is the image of God and a guy who actually does subdue everything in creation. But it's not him and it's not us. It's some other guy who has to come and be the dominion man and represent us and bring us in 
to his kingdom. So we're reminded here in Scripture that there is a dominion man who is coming, and he's going to come into the realm where Adam failed, and he's going to be victorious. He's going to do what Adam should have done. Now, the nations and seeing this nation of Israel to whom God had been faithful and they had multiplied greater than the stars and the sky, they want to know, are these people for peace or for war? Well, the answer that they get is, you can't stop Yahweh's controlling word and global plan. Peace, rest, and blessing can be enjoyed, but you must be holy to live in this king's kingdom. But the problem is you're not holy, which means he has to come and deal with you to make a holy kingdom. There is only one who will rule over all, and he will mediate his blessing through his servant nation, which is Israel. And Israel's mission is again being announced here to the entire world. And the nations are frustrated by it because they can't stop God's plan for Israel. But if they can't stop God and being for Israel, then what can they do? Well, in the background behind this text, we're going to learn a little later in Numbers 31 that if you can't get God to go against Israel, the only thing you can do is to get Israel to go against God. And so what Balaam does is he gives a plan to tempt Israel to unholiness. Because if they go against God and God is holy, he'll have to judge them. Which brings us to how fickle a congregation in chapter 25. I've been waiting for the day that I could do that move right there. And so what happens, you know, when you're reading a narrative, we talked about how you're always following the plot and perspective because the plot's always giving you a perspective and worldview. And what happens here is the camera swings from Balaam and his donkey to focus on this priest named Phineas and his zeal. And we're going to get some perspective from an event that's known as Baal Peor. So this is kind of similar to when we, when we say, you know, remember 9-11. You know, we say that nobody has to explain to you all the stuff and the events that took place on that day. Well, what happens here at Baal Peor, we're going to read about all of the events and everything that happens. And then from that point on, all that happens is people say, remember Baal Peor. You'll see that even when you get to Deuteronomy and, you know, there's kind of these hints that, you know, people are going to sin or go against the Lord. And Moses just says, remember Baal, Peor. That's all that needs to be said. <laughs> During this time of this event that's remembered in history as Baal, Peor, uh, Balaam's plan is hatched, which is to send Moabite women to seduce Israelite men into idolatry and Baal fertility cult worship. And Numbers 31, 15 to 16 is where we kind of get more of the story. When it says, So Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the word of Balaam, to act unfaithfully against Yahweh in the matter of Peor. 
So the plague was among the congregation of Yahweh. So what happens here is that, you know, Balak and Balaam recognize they, they can't eliminate the, the witness of God's people in the world through direct conflict. They're never going to, through military force, be able to totally take out Israel. They're always going to be around. So what it tries to do instead is to neutralize their witness by absorbing them into the world, to, to try to bring them into idolatry and immorality, to distract them, to be against God and about their way of life. And what happens in this event in chapter 25 is a, a national apostasy occurs, a, a national turning away from Yahweh where Israel doesn't just want Yahweh in covenant, they also want someone else. In other words, they're spiritually and physically adulterous. Chapter 25 here is the final judgment of the wilderness generation, and it comes right before the next generation, the faithful generation, chapter 26. And there's three lessons to learn from the event of Baal Peor. And the first one is that total apostasy leads to massive destruction. God isn't going to tolerate it. And the second lesson you learn from it is that God's wrath is satisfied against the nation by taking out their heads. He takes out their representatives or their leaders because what it shows is this concept that we've talked about in the past of corporate solidarity. There's these, there's the ones who represent the whole, and if you take out the ones who are representing them, then you have taken them out. There are the representative leaders who, if they're killed, God's wrath is satisfied against all of the rebels. The representatives are killed to satisfy wrath for an entire nation. And how are they executed in chapter 25? It says in verse 4, Yahweh said to Moses, Take all who are the heads of the people and impale them or hang them in broad daylight before Yahweh so that the burning anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. So how do you get Yahweh's wrath to turn away? Well, you take the leaders, you kill them, you stick a pole through them, and you carry them out, and you stick them outside the camp in the ground so everybody can see them hanging all around them in broad daylight. This is how, this is the punishment which satisfies God's wrath. It's the most severe punishment, and it's paired also with bearing shame. You know, the, these men were hung publicly in front of everybody to, to see God's wrath and humiliation combined in this execution that was carried out. The only solution for apostasy that we see here is the wrath upon leaders in place of the people, which gives the background to Deuteronomy 21-23 where it says, Cursed of God is he who is hanged. 
where it develops in talking about this disobedient son who is hung on a tree, which eventually in history connects him to Christ being treated as if he were the disobedient son as the representative for all of those disobedient sons to take upon the wrath that they deserve when he was hung and impaled in their place to satisfy God's wrath. So Baal Peor is forever etched in the memory of Israel as a reminder of this is how God's wrath is satisfied. And it can be done in our place. Somebody can die in our place and be our righteousness also, which is the point of Phineas and his zeal in chapter 25, verses 10 to 18. Amidst this national tragedy of all these uh, people uh, committing immorality with all these Moabite women, which here's you know part of the tragedy is that they're, they're doing this in front of the tabernacle. And this isn't some hidden sort of event, and everybody's recognizing what, what's happening. People are weeping because they recognize the great tragedy that's occurring. They can see their leaders hanging on spears all around them on the outside of the camp, but now they're not just outside of the camp sinning. They're right in front of the tent of meeting, uh, committing adultery against Yahweh, and right in the middle of all of this, some joker decides to bring a Midianite girl into his tent in front of everybody. Moses sees it. All the people that are weeping see it, and Phineas sees it. But now Phineas understands something. He understands that when stuff like that comes into the camp, it plagues everybody. But the way that you stop the plague and satisfy wrath is you stick a spear through it. So in Phineas's zeal, he takes a spear and he goes into the tent and he impels this man and woman you know, in their act of immorality. This is uh, verses 7 and 8, chapter 25, 7 and 8. It says, And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. So he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel in the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. Then the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. So we read of this other language that's unique in scripture of being pierced through in order to satisfy wrath, which connects later out into Zechariah 12.10, where it's foretold that Israel will mourn Yahweh, whom they have pierced. So this piercing, hanging, impaling execution is the thing that satisfies wrath. But you see, God will accept a substitute representative. There's a couple of lessons you learn from Phineas here and that you learn what it means to have zeal for God and what holiness looks like. Zeal for God is ultimately when holiness wins. 
Zeal for God is when sin is put to death and righteousness is lived out. And the second thing about Phineas' zeal is that it it leads to the uh, priestly or Levitical covenant of a perpetual priesthood being ratified here in Scripture. Now, Phineas is one of Aaron's sons. Now, I remember with uh, out of all of the Levites, not all of them were priests. Only Aaron's sons were priests. Now it gets narrowed down even more, and only the sons of Phineas are to be priests because of what he has done here. So not any of Aaron's sons may become priests, only Phineas's sons. Now, reading of the priestly covenant here, starting in verse 10, it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his seed after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now what happens with this? You trace it out in the first chronicle six and that the line of phineas traces into a guy named zadok and zadok in ezekiel 40 to 48 is talking about this kingdom on earth which we know is the millennial kingdom later of this temple that's built and these phineasite zadokian priest are offering sacrifices in in memorial to the fact that God has given a sacrifice that satisfies wrath and he's provided a substitute righteousness for his people. We read of this as a distinct covenant, not only here, but also in Jeremiah 33, if you want to turn over there with me. Jeremiah 33:20 20 to 21 which the the larger section of Jeremiah 33 is uh, a place in scripture where all of the biblical covenants are tied together right side by side uh, we're just going to look at a very small section of it 3320 3320 says thus says Yahweh if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time. Now, what covenant is he talking about there? Yeah, it's the Noahic covenant. And he says, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant. Well, what, what covenant is that? The Davidic covenant it says, so that he will not have a son to raise on his throne and with the Levitical priest my ministers. So you see, the, the Levitical covenant is as long-lasting as the Noahic covenant. Uh, and it's put alongside here in this text the Davidic covenant, that there's you know, uh, the, the king covenant and then also this priest covenant, which is going to continue as long as there's day and night. 
That's how long this covenant's going to continue on, which makes sense that it has its ending point after Christ has brought his kingdom, and then there is no more day and night. There's just light all the time, and there is no more temple. But there's going to be a time when these Zadokian guys and their lineage, they show back up in history. I mean, they're already around. They've never gone away. You know, God's been keeping this covenant. So what's the point of this uh, priestly covenant? I think the point of this covenant is that God will accept a substitute righteousness. He will accept somebody being righteous in place of the people, which is exactly what Phineas does. Uh, in a way, you could say he, he was Israel's righteousness for them so that it could be counted to them. If you would, turn over to, to Psalm 106 with me, 106, 28 to 31. This is one of those remember the all Peora moments in Scripture. Psalm 106, 28 says, Then they joined themselves to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their actions, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interceded, and so the plague was checked, and it was counted to him for righteousness from generation to generation forever, which reminds you of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. Well, Abraham's righteousness isn't something that, that, that came from him. It was alien to him. It was gifted to him. His faith in God's righteousness was counted as righteousness. Same thing with Phineas here, but he's a picture of a priest who is the righteousness of the people for whom he makes atonement. So how was it that Yahweh saw this whole event of Phineas and the spear? Well, it says, and it shall be for him, back in Numbers 25, 13, it shall be for him and his seed after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. You see, the, the jealous love of God for his bride was carried out through the human agent of Phineas. Any love that's worth its salt is a jealous love. A husband who isn't jealous over a wife who gives herself to another man has no love for her at all. You see here that Yahweh sees an adulterous people whom he loves, and he doesn't divorce them, but he, he goes to battle for them, to be everything that they need to maintain his covenant faithfulness to them. They say he, he never takes off his wedding ring, even though Israel tried to. More than a husband is to have a jealous love for his wife. The Lord has a jealous love for his people, which... Phineas shared in which Jesus even echoes the severity of this jealous love in Matthew 18, 
when he says, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned into the depth of the sea. Jesus is jealous for a faithful, devoted love to him alone because he, he loves his bride with a jealous love. And anyone who would dare interfere with that, it would be better that they would be drowned with a large stone around their neck than to provoke the jealous love of Jesus for his redeemed. A cruel and inhumane death would be better than tempting God's people to stumble because when the lion who is from the tribe of Judah, comes wearing his robe, it will be dipped in the blood of all of those who tempted his people and opposed his righteous, holy plan. This section of Scripture in Numbers ends the, will, the time of the wilderness generation. You remember when I talk about how Numbers can, it can be broken into two parts with two censuses, the first one of the wilderness generation that dies in the wilderness, and this new faithful generation that we're going to have a census when we hit Numbers 26. And what happens here in this transition is that you see Phineas's zeal is the zeal of a new generation. See, we're not going to be like our parents who rebelled against Yahweh. Uh, we're going to be faithful to him because he's been faithful to us. We understand that he's holy and we don't want his holy judgment. We want his holiness lived out by carrying out obedience to him. They wanted a zeal which delights in the jealous love of God and wanted to return that jealous love to him and to not share anything of their love and life with anything besides their covenant redeemer alone. They were the ones who trusted in God's controlling word and global plan. So we'll end there on this marvelous, multifaceted, complicated piece of Scripture laying out God's covenant, global plan, how it relates to the Abrahamic covenant and the priestly covenant. How many of you already knew something about the priestly covenant before this lesson? All right, kind of, we had a, one of these and one of these. All right. Yeah. Well, it's a good one. And I think there's a lot of it that's kind of mysterious. You don't get, you know, a lot of details about it. It just kind of pops up a few obscure places in Scripture, mostly ones that are uh, hard to interpret, but they're there. And so maybe you'll get to shake the hand of some fellow that was, that's related to Phineas and Zadok. And you could use that name for a child or a pet. It's kind of fallen by the wayside. Sounds more like an evil villain name than a good guy name, but it's a good guy name. All right. Uh, if you have any uh, questions about any of these 
text. You know, let me know. Maybe I can point you to some further reading on them. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your jealous love for us, a love that will not let us go, a love that is so severe that you will destroy all of our enemies so as to keep us faithful in covenant to you. How great is your covenant love through the ages and how sure is the firm foundation of your word and your promises throughout generations to read of these ancient texts where you were continuing to be faithful to carry out your promises and to read of things that are yet to be fulfilled and where we know more and have experienced more, there is still greater blessing to come. There is still an anticipation that you will keep every promise that you have made in Scripture, be it to Abraham's seed or to Phineas's perpetual priesthood. Pray that you would give us greater, clearer understanding and delight and amazement in these things, and that it would stoke in us a greater zeal for your invincible global plan that is as certain as your unchanging character. You are faithful, and we rest in your love. Amen.